HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Greg Bresnitz. And I'm Darren Bresnitz. We're the host of Snacky Tunes. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everybody, and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and I'm here at the Heritage Radio Network studio in the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. In case you haven't heard, I'm guest hosting the show for the winter 2016 season. Aaron Fairbanks can be found still on air um, on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. alongside co-host Jack Inslee on HRN's Week in Review. You should check it out. Today, I'm excited to have Deb Sewell on the line, um, Deb Soul on the line, calling in from my former neck of the woods, Midcoast, Maine. Deb Soul is an herbalist, gardener, teacher, and author of two books, The Woman's Handbook of Healing Herbs and How to Move Like a Gardener. Raised in a small town in western Maine, Deb began organic gardening and studying the medicinal uses of herbs at the age of 16 alongside the internationally known herbalist Mary Bove. As Deb's knowledge and faith in the efficacy of medicinal herbs grew, so did her desire to be of service to her community. With this, Deb began preparing various herbal remedies, and in the fall of 1985, she launched Avena Botanicals with a mail-order catalog offering a small selection of herbal extracts and teas. Avena Botanicals has since grown into a collaborative team offering high-quality, handcrafted herbal remedies that enhance people's health, spirit, and well-being. In 2014, Avena Botanicals came under the scrutiny of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the apothecary's labels on herbs and also for its medicine-making process in light of the FDA's current good manufacturing practices. We're going to get into that a little bit later. I invited Deb to the Farm Report today to talk about her trajectory as an herbalist and what she sees as the future for herbalists and small-scale herb producers. Deb, thank you so much for joining me today on the Farm Report. Thank you, Holly, so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here with you. 
Oh, great. So I wanted to start a little bit and um, talk about the growing practices at Avena. So Avena's handmade um, line includes herbal tinctures, teas, oils, salves, creams, elixirs, and they're all largely derived from plants grown on site um, of your facility, which is in, I hesitate to call it a facility. I've been there before, and it's a beautiful um, little gem on the coast of Maine with these lovely gardens. So it's like three acres of gardens surrounding the apothecary, and about 70% of the herbs that are used in the products are grown on farm. So it seems like this you have like the con- the control of your production from seed to bottle, as you say on your website. So I was hoping we can dive into this whole process today, starting a little bit with your production gardens. So yeah. tell me, I, first, um, Avena is the first farm to be biodynamic certified in Maine. So I thought we could start there with you giving us an overview of what biodynamics are. Mm. So biodynamics comes out of the work of Rudolf Steiner, who um, was Austrian-born in the 1860s and went on to study um, in Vienna. And some of the work he said was of Goethe, who was a very famous botanist. And Steiner was clairvoyant, had the gift of being able to see kind of into the, see beyond the physical world. So biodynamics came out of kind of his spiritual understanding of the natural world because he could see more than just physical form. And there were a number of um, farmers who were inspired by Steiner's work um, post-World War One in Europe where there was such devastation to the land and to already the, the soil was beginning to decline in fertility, seed viability was declining, the health of animals was declining, and they asked him, please, could you help us? understand how to care better for soils and seeds and animals and ultimately for the the quality of the food that we're eating. And so out of that, Steiner gave these eight lectures called the Agriculture Course. It was given 91 years ago, and um, that is a book, actually in book form. The easiest translation is by Malcolm Gardner and Catherine Krieger. I say to people, it's just called the Agricultural Course. Easy to buy it from the Steiner books, but a really um, kind of really helpful to have other people, I think, to study it with, but it kind of outlines the basics. And for me, I can just say the basics of why I came to start using a lot of the preparations is they made sense to me from an herbalist standpoint, because there are six herbs that are used in the compost pile to really enhance the life of the compost pile. There's almost like a homeopathic way that cow manure is is, used stuffed in cow horns, buried in the ground at the end of September, and then um, we, we make it on our farm. We unbury those cow horns kind of in late spring, and it's beautiful compost, and that's then used um, as a kind of a homeopathic version of a way to um, enhance the fertility of the soil. So and, there's, and by and, a homeopathic version, it's like a very condensed, concentrated yeah, way. It's almost like, I say it's almost like just a small handful, like a golf ball size that's mm. For us, we since we are spraying about two and a half to three acres with just a, a we're just using um, like a, a wooden wallpaper brush that I am literally just flinging a homeopathic amount of these water droplets. So some so someone really needs to understand something about homeopathy, I think, to be able to kind of grasp that we're not talking so much about substance as we're talking about more um, the you know, kind of the the, for, the healing forces that are really present in 
in herbs and in a homeopathic version of manure. So Steiner went beyond kind of the really typical, you need this amount of nitrogen, this amount of potassium, this amount of, you know, whatever these substances are to create really these homeopathic-like preparations that really contain much more of the vitality and the forces that are in the substances that have been transformed through different types of processes, which is kind of what happens when, you know, when we make an herbal extract or in a homeopathic remedy is, is created. So, but just to say, I mean, we could talk for hours on homeopathy, <laughs> but I mean, on biodynamics, but just to say it, it was, for me as an, as an herbalist, it made sense to me that I would be using so many of these natural substances that I already related to and that I already had a relationship to homeopathy that made sense to me. And I already, I mean, ever since I began gardening, you know, when I was a teenager at age 15, I've been using organic practices. So yeah, we always say you want to have a really good, strong foundation of organic principles to then you can add, you can build upon that with the biodynamic preparations and an, an understanding of, because biodynamics is a whole kind of study in itself. I mean, I will spend my whole life studying biodynamics, and I still probably will barely be touching on the level of the depth of what it really means to care for to care for our soil, to care for our farms as living, breathing organisms, to care for the plants that then, for us as herbalists, we then transform into herbal medicine, and how then does the vitality um, that's in our practices, how does that translate into the herbs that we're then making into medicine? And for me, that, I can the, yeah, so, yeah, Yeah, so like um, one of the things um, – on reading on your website, you were talking about how, um, yeah, starting with the, the strong principle of, of organic and then adding um, it sort of in a spiritual realm is that you say that's the difference between and how biodynamic adds on to the organic agriculture. So you started to touch on this a little bit, but why is spirit an important consideration for herbalists? What, say, why is what is spirit? Why is spirit, spirit uh, an important spirit. consideration for herbalists? Oh, it's a beautiful question, and I can ju- I'll answer from my own direct experience. Um, I would say when I was a child, I was very fortunate. I grew up here in Maine. I grew up in a really rural area. I grew up with a grandmother living with my family who was hearing impaired, and her other senses were very, very heightened. And I used to go out with her as a little five-year-old, six-year-old, and two very strong experiences I have is she would take me to these very special places called the Maybanks, where in Maine, early May, one of our wildflowers called the Mayflower or Trailing Arbutus, would, it would be blooming at the beginning of May. And she would always take me there to experience that kind of magic of, the, of the, one of the first early spring flowers. And she never, ever, like, instructed me with anything about spirit. She gave me the experience as a little girl to just experience just to feel kind of that magical moment of when spring arrives and these flowers arrive and you have to get down on your hands and knees. It's a tiny Aww. little trailing flower. And so there was, there was like, there was a quality of awe for me as a little one. Like, this is like amazing. Like I'm having an experience of this beautiful flower that comes once a year with the spring that smells really sweet. And she would also do the same thing with me in this apple orchard that she would take me to to watch the apples, the flowers just come into full blossom. So I, as a little one, it was like without formal instruction, what she was transmitting to me was 
she was offering me through watching her how to observe sort of the beauty of the natural world that was beyond words that needed no formal explanation yeah but you i had to bring my full presence as a little one and little ones often if we haven't been too gone through too much education now obviously little ones are too much on their computers but if you know if you're a little one in the world of the world of kind of shall we say elemental beings and nature spirits and kind of that beauty that little ones have access to there's spirit in there and i i didn't know it as spirit until i got older and as i i've been very very fortunate to have some very fine herbal teachers in my life a few of them um come from you know, Native American tradition, and a few of them come from non-Native American tradition. So I've been, and I will say also from my time when I was 21, I spent four months living in Nepal, and that was also another place where I began to see um, kind of the spirit in the healing process. So I've had these experiences along my way as a young person that began to build upon each other, and then I began to actually have some kind of understanding that there's life, there's, there's this vitality, there's this life force, there's this presence, there's this beingness, there's this spirit in plants. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of a little bit of variation, all those, all those different words I just described. But ultimately, you know, I was taught at, at, in my early training as, a, as an herbalist that actually every plant, every tree, every bird, every pollinator has a spirit, has an essence, has a presence, has a life. And that's really in the way that we care for plants, that we communicate with them, that we tend them thoughtfully, that we are very respectful before we harvest anything. That's about an honoring and a recognizing there's actually, you know, there's a real life presence. And that's, yeah, I, want, I was wondering how it translated to your production methods at Avena. And you just yeah. mentioned now that when you're harvesting it, you take the time to to thank the plant. So what is, um, you market your products as high quality herbal medicine. And I'm wondering if you could speak to what some of the qualities and if the spirit is one of the qualities, but how, how do you determine those in making your medicine out of, you know, botanicals? Yeah. So for me, for all these years, you know, I've been, I mean, Avina's 30 years old and I was, you know, even beyond that, I was learning how to just very, be very thoughtful, and I'm fortunate that from the beginning that I was started to be taught about the medicinal or the healing qualities of plants, at that same time, I was taught to make an offering. So um, some people, I mean, it's a very personal thing for people, and I think it's a very, you know, I can't say there's one right way to um, make a relationship and make an offering to a plant, but for me... Um, the plant that I've come to use as an offering plant is a native flower that grows here in Maine. It's called Pearly Everlasting. And that was something I was taught that plant by a Passamaquoddy herbalist named Freda Paul, who's, who in the Passamaquoddy tradition, they are one of the four tribes here in Maine. They call that plant um, women's tobacco. Uh-huh. And as we know, traditionally, the, the Nicotiana, the tobacco, is very sacred plant yeah. to the, the native people of the Americas. So I thought... This is a plant I have a personal relationship with because it grows here on its own. We grow it in our garden, and so that's the flower that we grow and dry. And all of us as herbalists, when we go out to harvest all the gardeners, what we do is we will sit quietly um, 
before the bed that we're going to harvest, and each of us, in our own personal way, makes a connection with this plant. And when I was in Nepal, I actually was given um, a whole prayer, which I still say before I harvest. And it's just, again, it's a recognition of that we've come to ask for this for, for your medicine and to really kind of send a picture of what it is that we're that we're asking and to pause. We don't just start taking. We pause to make that connection with these plants, and then we make an offering with for us. It's with a pearly everlasting, and then we harvest. So there's 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 really a stopping. There's a there's a connection being made, and then there's a thank you and offering being made, and then also when we harvest, you know, you're going to find again different for different people. Sometimes we like to sing and. Sometimes we're quiet. Sometimes a conversation might arise out of the use of the plant, and then stories are told from the different experiences different gardeners have of using the plant for medicine or of you know just a connection they have with that plant. So we keep our hearts and our minds and our hands kind of focused on what we're doing. We're not kind of off talking about some movie we just saw, or whatever. We're trying to really stay present with here we are. With the you know with this gift of being able to be harvesting these plants and then they come inside and and the, yeah what do you what do you yeah. do from there upon harvesting obviously it depends on yeah. what type of herbal remedy you're making but maybe you could yeah. talk a little bit about um, one of those that you you make or yes yeah, so like calendula is we grow we harvest about 300 pounds of calendula in the season and we start. Two different. Um, we start about a thousand seedlings in our hoop house. I was going to say that, that's yeah. a lot. Three hundred pounds yeah. when it's very light flowers. Is it, it must yeah, be a, a lot. massive. Three hundred pounds is a lot. So we have two thousand. Usually we have about two thousand plants growing, and the calendula is harvested every other day. So starting kind of towards the latter part of June, all the way until um, early October, we're harvesting calendula, and so. They either will go into our drying rooms and they're weighed and then they're laid out on drying racks where they're then dried and then processed into our medicinally infused oils and salves that we make. They also are dried to go into some of our herbal teas. If they're going to go into our extracts, we use them fresh. And so then if they're going to come inside to be processed immediately into an herbal extract, what happens is that we have a space that we call the fresh plant receiving Room and they'll come in. They're weighed. Um, they're marked into a book. The fresh weight, the date. They're um, myself and another person are formally trained in botany so that we can actually be the ones who sign off to say okay. yes. This, in, this is indeed calendula. And then um, Bob, who makes our extracts, then he will then he knows in that morning what's going to be coming in for his processing, and then he'll come and take the basket and he'll take it into the designated room where we prepare all of our herbal extracts. And then he uses, we just use stainless wearing blenders that are just a gallon size. And so then he'll, he will follow his recipes of the alcohol water percentage and then he'll grind them up and they go into glass gallon jars and then they sit for a minimum of usually about four weeks before then they get pressed or longer depending on, because with the calendula, I don't know, we, we make several gallons. So they may come in over a couple months, and then at some point later in the fall, they'll all be pressed, and then they'll go into the production of being sold, you know, as a calendula extract and Um, and bottled. For someone who doesn't know what an extract is, can you just explain that? Yeah, so sometimes people call, I mean, I think technically we probably make tinctures, and um, 
it's been a little bit the languaging that is used around the FDA is a little bit has been a little bit challenging. So a tincture is a um, is probably truer to what we're making, which is we um, we use a certified organic alcohol, um, and every single herb that we make a tincture from, or you know, extract is basically you know saying you're extracting, extracting the yeah. from the plant. Yeah, is um, every single um, every single herb that we're making a tincture from has its own particular recipe based on the constituents of the plant. And that's something I've just worked with over the last 30 years to really fine-tune. Is it um, based I, on, like, the water weight in the plants mostly? or so, um, Not so much for us. Um, some people are very, very... I mean, we do weigh everything fresh and dry. So, like, for example, I can say that... I mean, there's always going to be a variation of water weight because every growing season is going to have some variation. Some, yeah. might, some seasons are going to be wetter than others. Like, for example... The, the general um, calendula generally eight pounds of fresh calendula dries down to one pound. Oh wow! So <laughs> we we do you know we we know some of that um, in how we're working with um, the percentage of alcohol and then how much water gets added into a fresh plant. Whereas if you're working with a dry plant like ashwagandha root, we grow it, we dry it, and then it goes into production because the alkaloids um, that are too irritating if they're not if the plant's not dried mm-hmm. um, first. So as much as we comes from our garden, um, we tincture it fresh because I also think that there is a level of vitality that's only found in fresh plants. And because we're walking from our gardens right into the building, there's nothing fresher than <laughs> than that, you know, something coming in. So some people say, you know, it's, it's going to vary depending on herbalists. You know, it's, again... There's no one right way to make something. I, I, I say to all people learning to make remedies is you have to really follow your intuition, you know, educate yourself, follow your intuition. If you feel like you want to make a tincture from something that you've dried and that feels truer to you, then that's what you have to do. You know, and so for me, so many of the herbs that I make fresh is because there's that added vitality that I found over all these years that's it's almost like I, it's palpable. I can taste it. I can really sense in our tinctures. Yeah. Um, great. Well, so I think it's time to take a short station break. When we return, we're going to get a little more into the FDA regulations of herbs. Stay tuned. Great. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. 
This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Um, thank you. Welcome back. I've got Deb Soul on the line here, um, herbalist and founder of Avena Botanicals, an herbal apothecary located in Midcoast, Maine. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, Deb's evolution um, through herbalism and her role at Avena Botanicals as an herbalist. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the regulations um, that the FDA um, impose on herbalists. So the FDA um, was mandated through Congress to regulate herbs as dietary supplements. So it's a broad category of um, things that are included in the dietary supplements. So I wanted to talk to Deb a little bit about how that's impacted Avena. So the um, from what I've read, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the herb processing end of Avena Botanicals was born in a small room in your house in 1985 and now 30 years later inhabits a $300,000 facility designed um, basically to meet the FDA standards. So what kind of changes um, has Avena Botanicals experienced in trying to comply with the regulations of the FDA? Yeah, so the... um the first, um, in 2008, is when I started to really try to begin to figure out, like, what are we going to do? And I would say the hardest thing has been the paperwork, um, especially because um, we just met with one of our Congress people yesterday to say that there really needs to be some kind of um, training that's affordable and accessible to small-scale herbalists, which there hasn't been. You know, all the webinars and things are fairly expensive for people to to take. I mean, there's some that are a little less expensive, but, um, you know, the issue of, for me as a, as a, basically, you know, I've been working with medicinal plants for 40 years. It's, it's really a, partially an issue of retraining. Like, the, I don't think this way. I do not think like the FDA thinks. So I'm yeah. having to really learn a lot about, you know, continuing my own development as an herbalist and stay really true to my path as an herbalist who's very connected to the healing and spirit of plants and my you know, my biodynamic practices. At the same time, I'm being required by law to learn a whole new language and a whole new way of operating, which is not what I've done for, you know, almost 30 years. So that's been a really great challenge for me personally. And I'm, you know, I'm really working with it in the best that I can. And so I started with space. You know, we basically, I was in a a program at the state of Maine called Farms of the Future. And that program allowed me to end up being in a grant um, process that allowed us to be able to get some funding to help us with um, that $300,000 loan that I had to take out in order to build this building. And the building um, has many, many positive aspects to it because it, um, obviously, the way we designed it ourselves, because we'd been producing, you know, tinctures and salves and oils for, you know, um, for over 20 years. So it's our design, lots of windows. It's totally a non-toxic building. There were so many positive aspects to what we've created the space to be in. And then, so we we first settled on the space. How are we going to make this be, you know, a USDA and an FDA, you know, compliant building, the way that we process to meet that. And um, that's, you know, that's been pretty, that's gone pretty well. It's It's the level of paperwork and how you translate that into implementation that is the most costly for herbalists and it is a lot about scale because um and it's also about i'll just say that 
personally, I don't believe that herbal tinctures should be lumped into the category of dietary supplements. I think dietary supplements absolutely need to be regulated as highly as they are. And in fact, I think we're still seeing that there's a lot of regulatory problems. There's not enough regulation of some of the pills and capsules and powders. You know, Guido Massey from Urban Moonshine says it so beautifully. Like, herbalists are not, you know, we're not working with white vats of powder. Yeah. Most of us are working with whole plants coming into our, you know, into wherever it is that we are processing them, and that it's a, actually a pretty much a direct connection, whereas the larger industry is so disconnected, it needs to be highly, highly regulated. And I think there are a lot of problems still that need to be solved around um, many, many of the places that are still not regulated enough. So herbal tincture makers, there's many things that I think are really valuable about some of these FDA regulations. And I also think that we should not be lumped into something that we are not. We are not dietary supplement makers. We are herbal tincture makers. And so for us, you know, because we're certified organic as a farm and we're Demeter certified as a biodynamic farm, um, we have to test our soil for heavy metals. Yeah. So that, that's one of the, the things that's really important for people who are buying herbs is that if you're, and there's a lot of people that are buying, you know, overseas that are, they have no idea what the level of contamination is, so both for heavy metals and for microbiological activity. So those two things we should be testing for. I totally agree with that. And yeah. for us, because so much is coming out of our garden and we test our soul for heavy metals, we're building a case that I hope will be able to really work for small-scale herbalists and, and herb gardeners that when we test in our soils, we shouldn't have to be redundant and go ahead and send it out for an expensive test. I mean, yeah, that every, herb that you, every herb that you send out is going to be over $200 to be tested. It's very, very costly. And that's every batch of herbs? or is it, That would be presumably yeah. every batch. Yeah. yeah. So, so if you were harvesting your calendula one day, you would have to send that out and test it. And then a second harvest of calendula later in that week, you would have to treat as a separate batch. Well, it's going to, we're going to, I mean, I think it's still going to be work, working, like for me as a, as a farmer, the calendula that's growing here should be treated as calendula. Yeah. I shouldn't have to treat it as separate batches. I'm, I'm yeah. working with calendula. And for us, I think we're going to try to work out a system where, as I said, we're, you know, our soils are part of our organic certification, are tested, um, I don't know, every three years or something. We're, you know, we're testing that. And also we're doing some random testing to prove that, you know, that microbiological activity is, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever is required of us from the FDA regulations that, that we meet that. I think it's, it's really off-farm things that get bought in. And so, you know, anything that we're buying in goes out to be tested. And then we're also going to be doing a whole thing where um, both to be able to prove that there's a certain level of alcohol that kills microbiological, if there's any E. coli or salmonella. So we're going to be doing both. We're going to be testing up front something like Japanese knotweed that we buy in from another farmer that, that digs it. it. You know, it's dug with usually with tractors because it's such a hard, hard herb to dig. Yeah. Um, and so we send that off. The dried herb should be tested, and then we're going to send off the finished product, which is required. We're required to send off the finished product. Also, we're trying to build a, an affordable protocol that can work for small-scale herbalists with Anything that we that we're not growing ourselves, that is that we're having to send out to be tested. How can we build an affordable testing protocol that is acceptable by the FDA and that also can, you know, small scale herbalists. I mean, we're you know we're we're a smaller scale apothecary than the large scale 
ones, and we don't have that kind of a testing budget. I mean, it's it's thousands and thousands of dollars depending on how many plants you're working with. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up the cost and how that affects the sustainability of an herbalist livelihood over time. Um, it seems like I've been looking on Avena Botanicals website um, for both my own shopping <laughs> needs and as a little bit of research leading into this. And you've um, at the time put a pause on some of your products. So you, I wanted to loop into um, why that happened. And um, yeah. so yep. it, so there's certain tinctures um that I was looking at specifically um, the compound tinctures, which are a combination of different single extracts of herbs blended together in blends for things such as moonies for um, women's menstruation or, you know, a UTI relief or lung tonic. There are all of these different wonderful products that you guys have, um, but they're no longer being offered. And I was wondering, um, so you guys have a longstanding tradition of educating your consumers. And one of the ways you do that in a non-traditional sense outside of like classes and garden walks is through the product labels themselves. So they'd always say like I could go into the local co-op when I was living in Maine and pick up a bottle of this Moonies and have an idea as to what um, it was used for. And um, but now I'm looking at um, so I actually have a copy of the warning letter that the FDA issued to Avena Botanicals dated November 3rd, 2014, that essentially says these labels designated your herbs as unapproved new drugs. They were saying, I'm just going to read a little piece from it, that the therapeutic claims on your website establish that the products are drugs because they are intended for use in the cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease. And then it goes on to list um, er, several examples of herbs, astragalus, black cohosh, calendula, um, and continues to cite that certain products, quote, are offered for conditions that are not amenable to self-diagnosis and treatment by individuals who are not medical practitioners. Therefore, adequate directions for use cannot be written so that a layperson can use these drugs safely for their intended purposes. So obviously there's some um, legalese in here, but so... Um, what it comes down to is that you can't, as an herbalist, make claims that your herbs treat different diseases because it enters a drug category. So does this have, first, does this have anything to do with why certain um, products are not available through Avena right now? Yeah, no, that, that's a very separate issue. Okay. So um, we were working with using traditionally used for as kind of the way to introduce some of the basic things that some of our remedies were used for. And um, and I was trying to see if that was going to be a possible way, even though everybody was saying, you know, it's not going to be, and it wasn't. And so that's, that's, a, that's a different issue. If you go into our website, basically you're new to herbs, you won't know how to use anything on our website because it, it says basically like supports liver function or supports immune system. That's all we can say. That's all we can legally say. So we actually chose to... Um, production of our formulas um, are considered to be, when we blend them, it's considered to be um, a type of manufacturing. Okay. And, and, and I don't know, that was what one person said to us, and maybe it's not true, but we, we voluntarily and temporarily stopped manufacturing our, our blending our formulas, which we're going to start blending them um, actually in the next, um, in the next Within the next month, we're going to we're going to be back in production Great. because we have hired a full time quality manager. Oh, and that's fantastic! Other really, yeah, she's fabulous. She's 
formally trained. Her undergraduate degree is in botany, but she also has quality managing. She's she's done a quality management position at a, at a different, huge actually seaweed factory. So she knows how to speak the FDA language, and so we will be back in production, and we will be back blending all of our formulas and um, being able to make you know all of the tinctures that we're really good at making. So that is going to happen in the next couple months. Why we stopped is because we didn't have anybody um, experienced on our staff, like we've just hired, who would be in charge of all of the testing of all of the products that's required, you know, all the herbs that are required to be tested. I don't know how to do that. I'm not trained to how to do that. I'm actually not interested in it. Yeah. I'm interested in being a really good biodynamic gardener and a really good herbalist and teacher. That's where I shine. And so we needed to find funding. You know, we had to borrow a lot of money in order to be able to bring a full-time quality person on staff. And and part of the money that we had to borrow was in order to have um, about a $30,000 budget for testing. It's really wow. costly. Yeah. So it's it means for us that we will continue to, um, you know, we will need to increase our sales, but we're going to be doing that in a really thoughtful way. It's mostly through <clears throat> the you know, we did a really great Kickstarter last April, and we were able to raise money for some efficiency tools. Like, we're we're about to get a really wonderful floor-standing press. It took months to, you know, it's a special design, and it will cut our pressing of all of our tinctures and oils and sas. It'll cut our pressing time um, at least in half, if not more. So great. we're looking how to improve our efficiencies so that we can, it doesn't compromise our quality at all, but we're able to produce, you know, another, you know, we can produce more to be able to cover the cost, cost. of what it yeah. actually costs. Yeah. So I just wanted to double back on, so what about the um, the therapeutic claims that the FDA, so the FDA, FDA was saying? Yeah, you can't, nobody can make any therapeutic claims. But and so they, we, but they outlined some of your products. So what do you do about that? Have you just decided to change the labels or reword them or oh, how do you address them, them? Yeah, none of them were on the label except for we, we had a salve called hemorrhoid salve. Okay. And, you know, they consider hemorrhoid to be a disease. I don't necessarily I consider it to be a condition. Mm-hmm. And um, so we changed the name of that Sav, it's called Sitwell Sav. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, and I think there. Were, I'm trying to remember if there was something else. There might have been one other thing that. We, yeah, we had to change hay fever reliever. Hay fever is considered to be a disease. I don't consider hay fever a disease. It's it's a it's a kind of a, a symptoms that people get, but that's yeah. okay. So we named it pollen pardon. Ooh. So we just got to be cr- a little bit more creative, creative so that with we your can, naming. <laughs> yeah, give people a little bit of a clue. You know, I don't think for me, hemorrhoid salve was not saying this will cure your hemorrhoids. It was saying yeah. something that you know. And so again, I think from an herbalist perspective, again, I'm having to learn how to navigate, you know, a regulatory world that is really unfamiliar to me as a traditionally trained herbalist. And so you know, I'm doing my best at that and trying to have fun with it and. Trying to, you know, we're going to be offering more and more herb classes here on site because we do have actually a nonprofit educational center called the Herbal Classroom, and so in this next year we're going to be really beginning to develop more courses. It's going to be actually a year-round biodynamic training course here and other herbal, medicinal herb growing and using and preparing courses just to, again, help people who want to grow and make their own to feel really confident in that. Again, education, I think, is one of the most important things that we can all share with one another so that we can feel 
um, confident in how we care for ourselves with really basic home remedies, which should be a right for everybody to be able to care for themselves with basic home remedies. I agree. So what, um, ending on a little bit of a hopeful note, um, so um, one of the things it sounds like people can do is encourage and support their local herbalist. So what are some of your favorite herbs for self-care, perhaps something seasonal that you might recommend to someone um, who might be new to herbs or a little timid about herbs? And what format, like, would you recommend it in a tea or tincture? Or... Yeah, that's so nice. Well, right now, um, two of the teas that I'm drinking for myself in the winter is astragalus root, dried astragalus root, and dried burdock root. And I like to combine them together, and I simmer them for about a half an hour. And they're really both really wonderful for immune, you know, enhancing immune wellness, astragalus, and digestive wellness. And burdock also very, very helpful for liver and kidney function and um, just overall really helping the digestive system to go well. So those are two I like to drink in the winter. And as I move into spring, I love dandelion root and eating dandelion greens and drinking Mm -hmm. fresh nettle tea. And as I move into summer, I make a lot of sacred basil know, just a sun tea or lemon balm tea, and then we come back into fall. I love the berries like Shazander berry and Hawthorne berry. So I do, I like to kind of utilize some of the seasonal herbs, roots and leaves and flowers and seeds that are growing around me. And all of those can also be taken as tincture for someone who isn't as, as inclined to make herbal teas. So like the way that Avena and Aloe that a lot of herbalists make tinctures is we know how to make them so that they really are like a concentrated way of using these herbs if you're not going to do it as a tea, but if you still want to have the benefit from it. Oh, well, great, Deb. It was wonderful to have you on the line today. We're coming to the close of another episode of The Farm Report. So thanks, everyone, for listening. To find out more about Deb and Avena Botanicals, including what the apothecary is offering, you can check them out online at avenabotanicals.com. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening